I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you Howard Marks is co-chairman and co-founder of Oak Tree Capital Management, a leading investment firm with more than $140 billion in assets under management. Howard is a legendary value investor and has shaped Sean's thinking on investing and life through his books and memos that Warren Buffett has said, when I see memos from Howard Marks in my mail, they're the first thing I open and read. I always learn something. On this episode, Howard shares his philosophy on spotting patterns, risk learning, developing a great partnership and firm, being a contrarian, why he's changing his investment style after 50 years, and so much more. Anyone looking for a new job this year, or are you a company who's looking to hire great talent? If so, you might want to check out the job hiring platform, Culture Finders. I'm sure you're thinking, what's different about Culture Finders compared to the other job hiring platforms? Well... Other platforms only focus on your job skills and trying to match you with as many companies as possible. What Culture Finders does different is that they uncover the preferences, personalities, unique talents, and abilities that make up each job seeker and matches them with the company that these traits best align. It's not about sending 100 jobs, but about connecting you with the right job. We know your value to companies goes beyond your resume, and it's time you find a company that sees yours. Job seekers create your free profile today at culturefinders.com. And if you're a company hiring, you get a free job posting today. That's culturefinders.com. Oh yeah, just so you guys know, Culture Finders and What Got You There is actually hiring right now. So jump on culturefinders.com to create your free profile and hopefully we'll be working together soon. Howard, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Good, Sean. Nice to be with you. I'm honored to have you on. I'm always intrigued though about everyone's always looking for an edge. And I'm wondering after all these years in investing, is there something that you've done pretty much every single day that you think just had the most benefit for you over your life? Well, I think uh, being aware of one's environment, not actually trying to uh, apply something algorithmically uh, or, or formalistically, but um, uh, you know, the uh, the necessary condition for outperformance of others is is to do something different. Uh, uh, not every day, because there's not a, a, something intelligent to do differently every day, but uh, to be aware of uh, excesses in the environment uh, and uh, be they extremes of the economic cycle or extremes of the market or of investor behavior. And at that time uh, to... Uh, uh, stand away from the herd. Is there anything you do to control your environment to make sure you don't get caught up in that herd mentality? I think the only thing you can really do uh, intentionally is 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 be aware uh, and and try to, uh, as I say, not conform. Uh, uh, emotional control, lack, uh, unemotionality is essential because if you are subject to the same emotions as the herd, then you'll probably do the same things as the herd, not not stand away. So by definition, then you you have to uh, not uh, be emotional like the herd. People always ask me, well, how do you be unemotional? And it helps to be born unemotional. (laughs) Uh, And most of the 
great investors I know are unemotional or have their emotions under control. Uh, but that seems harder to me. It seems harder to uh, recognize the importance of emotional control and practice it, given that we're all subject to the same inputs and uh, we all see everybody else doing whatever it is they do. Seems to me to be harder to practice emotional control rather than be unemotional uh, by nature. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, well, speaking about standing away from the herd, I mean, much of value investing is understanding what the the company's competitive advantage is or the moat. I'm wondering for you personally, what do you think your competitive advantage is? Well, I'm not uh, investing at the individual investment level anymore. Uh, My uh, contribution at Oak Tree is more um, uh, general direction and helping with, uh, with the perception of the macro environment. Uh, so, uh, you know, those are the things I'm doing these days. Um, when I was investing, I, I think that, uh, you know, obviously we all try to get a better understanding of the company. Uh, but, uh, and, uh, you know, the market was not so thoroughly researched in those days. So it was really possible to do so. Uh, today, that's uh, that's much harder. So it sounds like that advantage has transformed as Oak Tree's grown and gotten bigger. So I'm wondering the the competitive advantage of Oak Tree, uh, as you guys ha- have grown bigger, has that become more of an advantage, or has that competitive edge become more difficult? Well, uh, Oak Tree is big, but our individual strategies. We have 25 different strategies, and uh, each of those, by definition, is not so large. If they, if we have 25 strategies, which until a year ago added up to a, a 120 billion, that means on average they were only uh, five billion, which is not huge in the investment business. Uh, and it's really the size of the strategy, the amount of money we had to manage in each strategy, that constrains one's selectivity and agility. So we, if you look at the record, it sounds big to have 120 billion or now, uh, you know, we had a very good year uh, and now we're up to 140 billion, uh, but um, five or 6 billion per strategy is, is not a lot of money on average. And obviously we have strategies that are 20 or 30 uh, within the 140 total, but we have limited our assets under management. And if you look a year ago, we were 120 and I think six years ago, we were probably also 120, and we thought that the last uh, um, few years have not been a good time to increase our assets. Most people have increased their assets substantially because they could, uh, um, and of course, the more assets you take, the more you get in fees, uh, but we have not increased our assets because we thought it wasn't a great time to increase assets. We were concerned that the market was vulnerable. Uh, what we thought was that the market outlook was that uh, there was a great deal of uncertainty. Prospective returns were low because interest rates were very low and that's what dominates that condition. Uh, Asset prices were full or high, not bubble crazy, but high. And many people were engaging in what I call pro-risk behavior in order to try to make a good return in an environment that offered low returns. Uh, And the, the main way to do that is to do riskier things. So if you look at those conditions, uncertainty, low returns, high prices, pro-risk behavior on the part of others, that's not a great time, in my opinion, to invest. So we constrained our asset total and we didn't show growth. 
many people doubled, tripled, even quadrupled their assets uh, over those years. And we did not. And, and I think that's a point of distinction. And sometimes it's great to have a lot of money because it gives you market power and the ability to influence outcomes and dominate companies, uh, for example, in, in restructuring of distress, which is a big thing for us. And sometimes it's good to have a little money. So you're selective and agile. Um, and and I, we thought that, that the recent years uh, leading up to 2020 uh, uh, were a good time to have little money because we thought that uh, that the market was vulnerable uh, to a, a, an outside shock, Howard. which obviously appeared and it was vulnerable to. I'm wondering, Howard, would you have been able to do this earlier in your career? No, I don't think I, no, number one, I hadn't seen so many cycles. And so I didn't have the, uh, what you might call pattern recognition uh, ability. Um, and uh, I'm not sure I had, I would have had the, uh, the confidence to, to make that decision. I know, I don't, I'm not sure I would have un- understood its importance. So I'd love to dive into pattern recognition. Anyone who's familiar with your work clearly understands you've got an above average ability in terms of spotting patterns. I'm wondering, you mentioned a minute ago, was this just due to time and understanding or were there things you did throughout your career that just helped speed that pattern recognition process up? No, I do think, Sean, that it's mostly time and understanding. Uh, but then, you know, uh, Ray Dalio in his book, recent book, uh, talks about uh, pattern recognition. And he said, uh, now, what, what they did is they studied history. And uh, he says, you reach a point where you where something happens and you say, oh, that's one of those. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's not a, it's not a formal thing. Uh, well, they did it formally. As I say, they did a lot of study of history. I just, I, I just lived through history. Uh, and they, they went obviously back further than my life extends. But I think that's the point. If you, you can get to the point where you say, oh, it's one of those. And, you know, <clears throat> the, re- the reason markets go to extreme is that many people fail to say, oh, it's one of those. Uh, instead, what they say is, this time it's different. And, you know, I first came across that phrase uh, on October 11th, 1987. Uh, there was an article in the New York Times written by a woman called Denise Wallace, and the title was something like, uh, this time it's not any different. And what she said is that when the market goes to extremes, people always say, oh, this time it's different. In other words, the old rules don't apply. This is, this is such a unique experience that the old rules don't apply. And so the old valuation limitations, you know, well, yes, the, the normal post-war PE is 16, but it's selling at 30 now, and that's fine because this time it's different. You know, there's the, whether it's the internet or the nifty 50 or, or the, the housing miracle in, 19, in, in, in 2005-6, you know, this time it's different. The old rules don't apply. And then there's a correction and people say, oh, yes, I guess the old rules do apply. Uh, so it's very important to, when you hear people say this time it's different. You're, a red light should go on. I think the phrase came from uh, Sir John Templeton. Um, and, um, and, but he said, but sometimes it is different. 20% of the time, it really is different. And the world does change. And if that was true when he said it in the 80s, I think it's much more true today. Maybe it's 40% or 50%. The world is, you know, when we, when I was a kid or even a young man, 
the world felt like it was a static place. Nothing ever changed. I always say that when I was a kid, comic books were 10 cents through my whole childhood. <laughs> we didn't have inflation. We didn't have changing prices. And, and we didn't have uh, rapid technological change or uh, communications that changed everything so rapidly. Uh, and we didn't have the partisan communications that we had now because uh, 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 communications operated under something called the fairness doctrine. So the world didn't change. And events played out in front of an unchanging backdrop, shall we say. Today, the world changes every day. So it's much more likely today that things really are different. That was one of the themes of my latest memo, uh, Something of Value. And uh, so I think it's important to recognize that today and be more flexible uh, in our approach. So, you know, uh, Mark Twain said history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. There are some things that are kind of eternal verities. Uh, but there is much more that's different from uh, uh, day to day. Speaking about things that are, are different, and then you were even talking about your childhood, what did you think you were going to be as a kid? Well, I wasn't that purposeful, so I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I had an idea uh, when I was a kid. When I was in junior high, I think, is when I started thinking about it. And uh, I think the, the first thing I was attracted to was being a history uh, professor. Uh, and then after that, uh, an architect, uh, and then in high school, you know, uh, public schools were better in those days. They offered more. They were not as stretched as they are. So uh, in my high school, they taught, uh, they had a course in advanced accounting, believe it or not. Uh, so I took that and I loved accounting because it had a, accounting is symmetrical and, uh, you know, it's always, there are always two entries and they balance each other. Uh, and I was just uh, attracted to the logic. And uh, so I, th I thought I'd become an accountant. My dad was an accountant. And when I went off to Wharton uh, to start in 63, uh, I, started, I thought I would major in accounting. But then I took finance and I found that much more uh, uh, interesting. So I switched my major. Looking back at the start of your career, would you have been able to predict the success you've had? Oh, I wouldn't even be able to predict what I did. You know, uh, I, when I got it, there are a lot of people in accounting who said, well, you know, I started to read prospectuses at 10 and, and, and then at 13, I invested my bar mitzvah money and that kind of thing. But, but uh, I didn't have any of that uh, uh, certainty. And uh, when I was getting out of uh, grad school at University of Chicago in 69, um, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I applied for six jobs in six different fields. Uh, 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 and the, uh, the uh, Citibank one that I applied for was the only one in investment management of the six. But uh, I, had, I had had a good summer working there in the year between years of graduate, uh, the summer between years of graduate school. And so I went back there and stayed for uh, 15, 16 years. So what changed at that time? Here, 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 it seems you were interested in a lot of different things and very broad in terms of what you might be interested in. And then all of a sudden, I mean, you, you devoted your life to this. What happened there? Yeah. Well, I mean, when, you know, when, when, when I start something, I get, uh, I get uh, attached to it. And, and uh, it, was, it was very enjoyable, uh, although not, not painless, because, uh, you know, when I got there for the summer job in 68 or for the full-time job in 69, um, the bank was a practitioner of what was called nifty 50 investing. Now, most of the, the banks were the big investors of the day. You know, there were no KKRs. There were no uh, 
Blackstones, there were no, there was barely, well, Vanguard didn't exist. There were a few mutual fund companies, but the, um, and there were no, what we call now investment boutiques, uh, you know. Um, uh, so, um, or hedge funds, the, um, the banks did the, most of the uh, investing of the time, bank trust departments, they were called. And uh, uh, that's where I was working. And uh, most of the, what we called money center banks, that's what I'm talking about here, the ones in New York and, and so forth, mostly New York and Boston, uh, they did the investing. And most of them were devotees of what was called nifty 50 investing, investing in the stocks of the 50 best and fastest growing companies in America. Now, this was a, a, a kind of company that really came into existence uh, after the war. And thanks to advances in technology and also marketing, you had companies like Xerox, Kodak, Polaroid, IBM, Hewlett Packard, Perkin Elmer, Elmer Texas Instruments, Merck, Lilly, Coca-Cola, AIG, Procter & Gamble. That, that grew faster than the other companies. You know, you didn't have these rapid growing companies in the 30s or before. And of course, not much uh, was invented on, on the civil side during the war. So this, this was a post-war development and mostly 60s on. And so uh, people went crazy over these stocks. Uh, they were considered to be such good companies that A, nothing bad could ever happen and B, there was no price too high for these stocks because of their uh, wonderfulness. And uh, so if you, if you bought them the day I got there for my first job, 69, and if you held them uh, diligently for five years, by, not, by the end of 94, 74, you lost almost all your money. And uh, in, in the best companies in America. And uh, so, you know, I was associated with that by that time, uh, late 70s, I was, uh, by 75, I was the director of research, you know, and, and uh, you know, I was just a kid, I was in my 20s, but, you know, for some reason, I was be able to do that, be able to, before my 30th birthday. And, and so I was associated with the Nifty 50 uh, practice at Citibank, and the outcome was terrible, the, you know, the, the, the clients lost almost all their money. And we were rather undiversified. We mostly had we mostly had only that. So I, you know, I always say I'm lucky I didn't get fired, but I did lose my job as director of research because they brought in a new chief investment officer to pull us out of the slump, and he brought in his own director of research eventually. And so, uh, but he didn't say I, uh, that I was fired. He said, "What do you want to do?" And I said, "Well, I'll do anything except spend the rest of my life choosing between Merck and Lilly." because I believe in market efficiency and I believe that you can't differentiate. You, you know, if, if you offered me a million dollars at the end of a year for saying which Merck or Lilly is gonna outperform in the next year, I couldn't do it. Uh, nobody can do it more than 50% of the time by flipping a coin. And so uh, he said, well, I want you to start portfolio and convertible bonds. Uh, they had had a convertible bond portfolio where he at his old job, uh, and Morgan, uh, uh, what was called Morgan Guarantee at the time. And um, so I did, and I loved it. And, uh, you know, I went from running a huge department with a big budget and, and uh, I think 75 people to uh, working alone with no budget uh, and no uh, 
organizational importance, and I, I loved it. Uh, but and then I, I got in the in the summer August of '78, I got the phone call that changed my life. Uh, it was the head of the bond department saying, "There's some guy named Milken or something out in California, and he deals with these things called high yield bonds. Do you think you can figure out what that means? What that is?" And so, you know, I was smart enough to say yes and uh, try to keep my job. And uh, I got involved with high yield bonds at the beginning of high yield bonds. And as Michael, Malcolm Gladwell says in his, in his book, Outliers, it's great to be first in line. It's great to, that's what he calls demographic luck, uh, to be at the right place at the right time. And, uh, you know, almost everything important that has happened in the investment world in the last 42 years has either come through the high yield bond world or has applied the mentality that grew up in the high yield bond world. Uh, and I was lucky to be there at the beginning. Um, now, now, however, so uh, here we are, we you invested in the best companies in America in the, in the end of the 60s, early 70s, and you lost almost all your money. Now I'm investing in the worst public companies in the world and I'm making money safely and steadily. So I drew two conclusions. It's not what you buy, it's what you pay. Almost anything, there's, well, let me say this, there's nothing so good that it can't become overpriced and a bad idea. And there are a few things so bad that they can't be underpriced and a good idea. It's not what you buy, it's what you pay. And the corollary of that is that good investing is not a matter of buying good things. It's a matter of buying things well. And if you don't understand the difference between buying good things and buying things well, then you shouldn't be doing this. It's all a matter of buying things well. And uh, these were my two uh, revelations at the time, and they really shaped what I've done since 78. We were talking about pattern recognition earlier. When you come across one of these revelations, I'm wondering what that looks like for you. Well, as, as I said, I spend most of my time thinking about the market in this regard rather than uh, selecting individual companies or securities. Um, so um, I think that uh, the pattern is, is to say, to, to find when things are overpriced, which is usually a function of there being too much optimism, and excesses in the environment, in the physical environment, and then too much optimism about what's going on, or too much pessimism, when there are uh, uh, craters in the environment, and too much pessimism about that. You know, in, uh, I, I, I use a lot of uh, uh, adages, uh, some of my own creation, but mostly other people, because they said it so well. And in the early 70s, uh, I was a member of something called the Third Thursday Group, which met on Wall Street for lunch on the third Thursday of every month. And it was for directors of research and senior investors and that kind of thing. Uh, and I, you know, I met a lot of very able people who are much older than me, and, and, and they shared the wisdom. And somebody said to me, the first, one of the first smart things I heard, uh, I learned, remember her, hearing, is there are three stages to a bull market. The first stage, when very few people only a, a gifted few understand that there could be improvement. The second, when most people accept that improvement is actually taking place. And the third, 
when everybody believes that things can only get better forever. And it is which stage we're in and which uh, uh, feelings people are guided by that really determines the status of the market. So is, are people being too pessimistic in the first stage? That's when you get bargains. Or too optimistic in the third stage, which is when uh, you know the uh, excesses on the upside are taking place uh, and when you can really get killed if you participate. So it really comes down, Sean, to a question of how much optimism is there? And uh, you know, if, if I could only know one thing about every every moment and every security, it's how much optimism is in there. When you buy when there's no optimism, by definition, the price is low relative to the intrinsic value. And, and that's when you get the bargains. If you When you do things, the real easy and big money in investing comes when you are willing to do something that nobody else will do. And when that's buy, nobody else is willing to buy, you buy, you get a bargain. The real easy way to lose money is when you do that everybody else is doing to excess. Because clearly, there, now there's too much optimism to be realistic, and you pay prices that vastly exceed the intrinsic value, and that's an easy time to lose money. So, uh, you know, I, I work on that. Now, that's qualitative, and there are quantitative things as well. Uh, valuations, uh, PE ratios, um, uh, bond yields, yield spreads, uh, capitalization rates on real estate, uh, in, uh, enterprise values on private equity purchase. These are quantitative, um, but but they can mislead. Uh, be, and and especially now in this period of great change, uh, his, the historic valuation ratios may not be that meaningful. Mm. And that was another important theme of the recent memo. Mm. Yeah, you need to be non-consensus and right. You mentioned at the third Thursday lunches, I, I love this. Uh, you just mentioned a little bit of wisdom you happen to pick up there. Any other really meaningful lessons that you picked up from someone much senior to yourself early in your career that just stuck with well, you all this time? The first of the great adages that I remember learning was that being too hard, far ahead of your time is undistinguishable from being wrong mm -hmm. or indistinguishable from being wrong. But, uh, you know, um, people turn uh, negative because they see things in the environment that, that are going on that spook them. But, and you may be uh, in principle right, but if you do it too soon and it doesn't work for a few years, everybody says, look at that guy. He used to understand this process, but look how wrong he is. You know, now you're not wrong. You're right, but early, but we're, right being right early looks like being wrong. And the question is, can you survive in that interim between when you make the decision and when it's proved out? And, and these can be very difficult times and you can show terrible performance and lose most of your money under management, even with a decision which is right in principle. So actually, you know, I always, I always tell um, that first thing I remember learning in Wharton in 1963, um, I read a book called Decision Making Under Uncertainty by oil and gas operators, a guy named C. Jackson Grayson, who later went on to be the first energy czar in the 70s after the uh, Arab oil embargo. And, and what he pointed out 
was that the, the sign of a good decision is not that it turns out to be right. You, and this is counterintuitive. I believe that most of the things that are important in the in investing world are counterintuitive. Uh, but the point is you can make a good decision and it doesn't work because number one, nobody knows everything when they make the decision. Nobody has all the facts. And number two, the, the world is, is uh, uh, dominated by uncertainty and by randomness. So, you know, you can make a perfectly good decision with, a, with good data and a good decision process, but it turns out not to work because of some random event. And uh, if, you, if you read Fooled by Randomness by uh, Nassim Taleb, who was, uh, that was his first book, um, and a great book in my opinion, uh, you know, he said, to understand the quality of a decision, you have to understand not only the events that occurred, but the other events that could have incurred but didn't, what he calls alternative histories. And only when you consider all the possible outcomes from a decision, do you really understand the quality of that decision. Uh, not, not by understanding the one event that did occur. So uh, it's really important to understand this and to understand that there are lots of good decisions that don't work, and there are lots of bad decisions that work. We all know we all know about people who are right for the wrong reason. So only when we look at the world that way do we understand who really made good decisions or not, uh, and that's a very important distinction. Also, so this is this is the kind of thing which is so. Uh, vague and provocative and uh, un, un, uncertain that that this is why investing is interesting. Maybe this has to do with emotional control. I'm wondering when, when you had one of these moments, you were just right, you were right early though, which made you look like a fool essentially. How did you handle that? Yeah, well, uh, I would say that the, that in the, in the last decade, uh, you know, I, I turned cautious uh, sometime around, I don't remember exactly when, sometime around the middle of the decade. And obviously it took until the pandemic and 2020 to be right. You know, there were there was a bad quarter here and there. The first quarter of 16, the last quarter of 18 were very difficult periods. But we didn't really have any bad years uh, until, uh, and we, you know, and, and uh, that, that was not a helpful decision until 2020. And, uh, you know, the collapse of the market in February, March, and even that didn't last long because the, the Fed and Treasury pulled pulled it out. So, you know, uh, it would have been better to to be incautious uh, in the in the in the tw in the twenty teens. Uh, but I was cautious. We were fully invested, but cautiously, and that uh, that had a price in that decade. Throughout your whole career, do you, do you have a decision? That, that you're just proudest of or just brings a smile to your face every time you think about it? Yes, we, we you know, it's a funny thing. When I, I, my last book uh, was called uh, Mastering the Market Cycle, and that came out in late 18. And um, uh, so I was working on that with, a, and I, I do a lot of my uh, musing with my son, Andrew, who's also a professional investor. Uh, and so I, I was talking to him about the book. Uh, while I was writing it. And I said, you know, I'm, I, I think most of my uh, uh, cycle calls have been right now that I think about it. And he says, yeah, dad, that's because you did it five times in 50 years. You can't make a good decision every day. Um, these calls of 
of a of a peak or a trough at the extreme of bubble and crash or high and low bull and bear the decisions the logic is clear and i think compelling and uh, the probabilities are on your side the probability of being right is high but if you do it in between you try to do it every day or every week or every month you try to do it when the market is 2% overvalued or 4% undervalued or something it's very hard to be right and so you know i i have done it maybe five times in my life and uh, some of the and they and they generally worked out very well but the, probably the best is that and 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 uh, it helps by the way not to do these things on your own but to do them in in partnership with somebody else who sees the world the way you do and uh, uh, you know, kind of like Buffett and Munger or something like that. And uh, you know, I've I've been lucky to have a partner named Bruce Karsh, who uh, is my co-founder of Oak Tree. Uh, worked with me at Trust Company of the West. Joined me in '86. Uh, together, we started the uh, I think the uh, first distressed debt fund from a mainstream institution. Oh no, he joined me in '87, and we started the first distressed fund from a mainstream financial institution in '88. And this has been, uh, you know, that was a TCW. And this has been one of Oak Tree's uh, most successful strategies since 88. Uh, we're almost 40 years together now. Uh, and um, um, uh, so I've been working with Bruce all, all that time. And, and we support each other in what we do. It's very, it's kind of lonely to do these things. And it's easy to second guess yourself. And it's great to have somebody else uh supporting your logic. Uh, but in um, oh, 05, 06, we turned very negative because of what we saw going on in the marketplace. And we really tightened our portfolios uh, and uh, tightened our decision process, uh, raised our selectivity. And um, in, in 07 to early 08, we raised a standby fund for investment in distress, which turned out to be the biggest in history at that time. It was 10.9 billion. Uh, our, our funds up to that point had been one or two, maybe three billion. And then in 07, uh, 08, we raised 11 billion. And we had it standing by when uh, mostly, almost entirely uninvested, uh, when we when Lehman went under uh, September 15th of 08. And we were able to uh, so we we may, had made a good decision to be cautious, and and importantly, uh, it, by uh, you know on September eighteenth and nineteenth, I I made the decision supported by Bruce that we should uh, invest aggressively, and over the remainder of '08, uh, he invested uh, a, an average of about four hundred and fifty million a week uh, for fifteen weeks at seven billion. Uh, and that's all you had to do to be successful was buy during the global financial crisis. And it, it kind of didn't matter what you bought um, because everything was vastly underpriced and almost everything recovered fine. There were very few uh, bankruptcies. And so the only thing that mattered was that you bought. Um, and we, we bought a lot. Much, you know, we had much more money than anybody else. And we put most of it to work in those 15 weeks. 7 billion out of 11. Um, and uh, so that, I think that was our, our best call. And uh, you know, I write uh, the memos to clients. And the great thing is 
that, you know, I don't have to say to people, well, yeah, I knew it. And they say, yeah, sure you did. Uh, you know, you can read the memos time, uh, you know, from, you can read the memos in, in uh, 07, which were extremely cautionary uh, until the, the uh, crisis hit around uh, late July of 07. And then the, what, we, what we did after the bankruptcy of Lehman in late 08, early 09. And you can see um, that we, I would say we called it right. And, you know, uh, very few people did. I recount in one of the memos, the fact that they, uh, I, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who was a reporter and he said to me, so what are you doing? I said, we're buying. He said, you are? Like, you know, what are you, crazy? And, you know, it turned out to be the right thing. So it's very satisfying and, 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 fin- and financially successful. Yeah, non-consensus and right once again and prepared for those alternative futures. You, you mentioned your son, Andrew, and believe me, we're going to dive into your latest memo because I love how deep you went on your own thinking. But Andrew's my age. I'm, I'm wondering, the advice you're giving to him, what do you wish you did more of earlier in your career? Well, I w- I've been too conservative, yeah. you know, and he, expl- he explained to me and I put in the memo why he thinks I was too conservative, which I, th- I had parents who lived through the Depression and were scarred by it. They were adults during the Depression, not children. That's not the important thing of being a child. If you were an adult, you knew what was going on. And so, you know, all my life, they would say things like, don't put all your eggs in one basket and save for a rainy day. And, you know, cautionary things like that, which, which influenced me. Uh, and then, you know, I, I was scarred because I, I, my first uh, half decade or decade in the investment business were, uh, you know, affected by the crash of the Nifty 50. Uh, and that had an influence, I'm sure. Uh, and then my, and then the fact that my greatest successes have come from, uh, you know, uh, spying excesses in the market, you know, excessive bull markets. So that became kind of a uh, pattern recognition that resulted in knee-jerk conservatism and skepticism. So I think that you know, I, I obviously, well. Uh, I mean, it, uh, as a fixed income investor and a credit investor, I think that being conservative was okay. <laughs> you know, I think uh, you made out fine. Well, yes. And, and uh, you know, in, in, in our fields, uh, the premium is on conservatism because, you know, being, a, being an optimistic and aggressive fixed income investor is almost like an oxymoron. You have to have a bias towards conservatism when you do fixed income. But, you know, and, and I would say that if, if rather than if my boss, uh, Peter Vermillier in 1978, rather than say, I'd like you to start a convertible bond fund, had said, I'd like you to start a venture capital fund and find Amazon when it comes into existence, I would have been a disaster because I'm not an optimist. I'm not a dreamer. Uh, and and uh, it, it wouldn't have fit my personnel. And one of the most important things is to invest as it's right for you. And, you know, uh, for a chicken, to, to be, try to be aggressive or for a, a cowboy to try to be conservative is challenging. Uh, so I was lucky because I fell into what was right for me. Howard, this is, this is a point I really want to hit on. Know thyself. They, they could be the most important words in investing. Yeah. I, I'm wondering how you were able to go against the grain at times and really truly understand who you were. Yeah. Well, I think that, first of all, I certainly didn't know who I was in the sixties or the seventies and you, you figure it out after a while, you know, 
And, uh, you know, if, if in, if in the eighties, you would have said to me, uh, what are you good at? I would have said, uh, I'm, I'm good at being analytical and, and, uh, you know, quantitative analysis. And, um, you know, I learned in the nineties and certainly the, this century that what I was really good at, uh, was, was more qualitative and conceptual and seeing the patterns in the market, uh, understanding, uh, concepts and theories and, uh, especially new, new products, uh, and concepts as they evolved, as the market evolved, uh, and and uh, communicating those things, writing, speaking, uh, speaking with clients, and uh, and and then leadership, and leading the organization. Millions of people are analytically, quantitatively uh, uh, capable, numerate, uh, but uh, I I think that, and I was fine at that, but I think that. These latter things, which are more qualitative and conceptual, uh, were really uh, my my strength. And you know, there's a my favorite quote of all is from an English writer called Christopher Morley, and I've never used this in a memo because it's never been appropriate. But he said, "There's only one success to be able to live your life your way," hmm. um, which is a great concept. But it, you know, th- the key for most people is to figure out what their way is. You know, and you have to you have to see what really are your strengths and your weaknesses and what it is that will make you happy and what will make you unhappy. Figure out your way. I love it. I, I'm so intrigued then with, with your latest thinking. Uh, I know you write about uncovering a bias of your own, and that's usually assuming towards mean reversion. How mm-hmm. difficult this late in your career when you've had so much success is it uncovering that bias and then not only facing it w- with your son but then, but then writing about it publicly well it's very hard to do it yourself it's another thing you know i talked about uh, how successful my work with bruce Carsh has been uh it's another example of the desirability of help of, of help you know many of us uh only understand ourselves when we uh go to a shrink when, you know, when we have gone to a shrink or, you know, when we've had lengthy talks with a, a priest or a rabbi or with our wives or with our best friend, you know, you, you, it's hard to do it on your own because you're, your own, you're, you want to see your, you want to understand your biases, but your biases keep you from understanding your biases, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I, this is very important. So, uh, you know, being, uh, living with Andrew and his family for much of the pandemic uh, was my was the help I got, and he's very different from me, and he's ex- extremely uh, insightful, and he has a very high uh, uh, emotional IQ, and he you know, helped me to see these things, and we you know we spent a lot of time, and uh, so I learned the the easy way, which is th- with help from him. And pointing out these things about me, myself, and my biases, my history, and and about value investing, and and uh, keeping an open mind, and and trying to be modern, and so forth, um, uh, and and some of it I learned the hard way, and I you know I recount in the um, 
in the appendix to the memo, a, a kind of a synthetic uh, dialogue between the two of us, you know, and he said, he says, well, I've got this and it's up this percentage. And I said, well, are you going to sell some? He said, well, it's a great investment. Why would I sell some? I, I would say, because it's up. He says, well, why should I sell it? Because it's up. He said, I said, well, it could go down. He says, well, I hold it because I think it's going up. And so I'm going to continue to hold it because I think it still has a lot of potential. And, you know, about five or six years ago, I wrote a, uh, I wrote a memo, maybe it was six or seven, uh, about liquidity in the market because everybody was talking about the fact that the liquidity was down because the banks uh, had been removed from the investing process uh, by the Volcker rule, which said that they couldn't make risk investments for their own account uh, because they were kind of public institutions and the government had an implicit promise to bail them out if they got into trouble. Well, why should banks be able to make uh, aggressive investments for their own account uh, and get rich if it works, but then get bailed out by the government if it doesn't work, which makes a lot of sense. So, um, so the point is that, um, um, let me think for a minute. Um, Oh, yes. So so I wrote a memo about liquidity six or seven years ago, and uh, I made the point that liquidity isn't always a good thing because most people trade too much. <laughs> and uh, in our distressed debt accounts, they're what's called closed end accounts. The client permits a certain amount of money to be invested, and the funds have a 10-year life, which is subject to extension if needed. And they can't withdraw their money. They can't trade too much, which means they can't sell at the, at the lows and buy at the highs the way most people do. And so I talked about the, the fact that liquidity isn't always a great thing and selling and buying too much and trading too much is not a good thing. And Andrew says, he says, and I quoted him in the memo, I said, he said, if you look at the chart of a stock that's been up for 25 years, and you say, man, I wish I had that stock. He said, think of all the days you would have had to talk yourself out of selling. And it's true. I mean, the, the hardest thing in the world is to hold a stock for 25 years and have it see it go from one to 10 to 100 to 1,000 and not sell it. And then watch it go to 10,000 and 100,000. And that's how you make the big money. But you have to hold for a long time. And, and instead, most people sell. And, and I always said, well, why don't you just sell some? And I had this, I had this, I've always had this rule that if you sell half, you can't be all wrong, but you also can't be all right. And it's kind of like my favorite fortune cookie, which says that the cautious seldom err or write great poetry. They, they really, the cautious really have disasters or huge successes. And that, that was my experience, but of course, in, in fixed income, there is no such thing as a huge success uh, because the, the, uh, uh, the returns are asymmetric. You can't make much, but you can lose a lot. So, uh, Bob, if you're in a market w where you can't make much, but you can lose a lot, then by definition, your, your, uh, your uh, approach has to be asymmetrical because the possibilities are asymmetrical. Um, and your, your approach has to favor defense. Uh, Graham and Dodd in, in uh, the Bible security analysis in 1940 called fixed income investing a, a negative art. 
uh, you succeed not because of what you buy, but because of what you exclude from a fixed income portfolio. So the point is that to hit the big successes, you have to uh, hold for the long term. And, you know, Andrew and I had that conversation all the time. I would say, well, why don't you just sell a little? Take, it's called per, taking profits. And he said, no, I'm going to let this run. And of course, so far, of course, he's, he's right. That, that, that certainly must be satisfying. I feel like this conversation is just full of so much long-term wisdom. Um, and, and one of your books, uh, the most important thing, one I really much enjoy, centered around in- investing. I'm wondering if you were writing a book, the most important thing outside of investing. Yeah. What, what would you have as number one? Well, we, Andrew and I talk about that being my next book. And, 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 uh, and in working on it together, because we have such a successful dialogue, and, and uh, you know, when, when I get the time, we, I think we'll do it. But I mean, look, I think that living life your way is the most important thing. Um, and I tell, th- this is how I conclude most of my talks with uh, students on campus, because they always ask, well, what should I do? And I said, well, number one, there's no an- right answer for everybody. No one size fits all. The worst thing you can do is, uh, do what other people tell you to do or emulate what other people are doing or what's popular or, or what society says you should do. Uh, and certainly uh, you, you shouldn't uh, choose a, a career because you can make the most money. I mean, most for most people, that's not going to be end up uh, 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 successful. Um, you have to live your life your way. And of course, the challenge, as I say, is to figure out what your way is. And, and, and when I'm talking to people at Wharton or Harvard Business School or, uh, you know, Columbia or these great schools, most of them have enormous ability. They're very intelligent. They wouldn't be there if they weren't special kids. And they can accomplish, most of them, what they set out to do, especially if they invest within their skill set. But the, the hard part is figuring out what it is that will make you happy. At a time, at a time when everybody, you know, and I've seen these waves of of careers. So there was a time, believe it or not, when most people wanted to be accountants uh, because there was there it was a very a, a profession in in demand. Then there was a time when everybody wanted to be a consultant, and then in the '90s, uh, and maybe even uh, I guess in and the aughts, uh, everybody wanted to be an investment banker, and now everybody wants to be a venture capitalist and a techie. And so, but I mean, obviously what a terrible idea it is to, to, to choose your career because it's the one everybody else is choosing. Number one, it'll be crowded and competitive. And number two, it may not be satisfactory to you. So I always say to kids, you, your the career you choose should uh, play to your strengths and avoid your weaknesses. And it should be the thing that will make you the happiest. Uh, we only get one life, as far as I know. And what a mistake it is to squander it on something that doesn't play to your strength and make you happy, and something which is chosen just because it will make you the most money, unless that's the thing that'll make you happy. Um, but I mean, that's 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 my most important piece of advice. But you know, I have lots of observations uh, on the world. You you even mentioned when we were chatting before the what you call the two by two matrix uh, about, um, you know, the fact that the things that work the best are the things that are unconventional and correct. 
Uh, it's a little hard to be unconventional. Most people don't do it naturally, and uh, and and the things that and the things that are conventional are often the right thing because they're the thing that so many people have thought about and chosen to do. Uh, so uh, it's it's hard to be unconventional, and it's hard to be right when you're unconventionally. But it's all. But when you do both, it's the most successful. That's that's one of the challenges in life. One of the um, the logicalities of life. This this leads me to, to wonder about the start of Oak Tree. And I've had a few mm-hmm. young people in the investing space that are wanting to soon or hopefully someday go, go off on their own. And you hit on self-belief earlier. I'm wondering how important was self-belief at the, the onset of Oak Tree Capital? Well, it wasn't a great challenge for us, Sean. Uh, uh, number one, you talk about young people who want to go off on their own. We weren't young people at the time. You know, I was... Uh, just about to turn 49 and uh my my partners were uh in their 30s and later the first the youngest guy i think was 34 at the time there were five of us who started oak tree together and we had worked at tcw together uh my my uh, oldest partner is sheldon stone who joined me at city in 83 and my newest partner uh was richard masson who joined me at tcw in 88. So by 95, when we started Oak Tree, we had lived to, worked together seven to 12 years. We were not newcomers to each other or to the business. And we had been very successful. So already, and number one, we made enough money so that we could uh, live with the risk if it didn't work. And number two, we had been successful together. So we had, we had kind of proved out uh, our methodology and and developed reputations, uh, which which are important in the investment business. So, uh, you know, uh, deciding to go out and do it on our own was, was not enormously risky. And as I mentioned, Bruce Karsh had joined me in 87 and Larry Keel had joined me in 86. So the five of us uh, went out and, and uh, started Oak Tree. We didn't have to figure out uh, what we would do because we'd already been doing it for almost a decade. And all we had to do was, uh, well, you know, since I write, I sat down and I codified uh, what it is we had been doing. And that became our investment uh, uh, philosophy and our business principles, both of which are published on the web at oaktreecapital.com, which we haven't changed. We've added one thing to the business principles and we haven't changed the word of the investment philosophy in almost 26 years. And... uh, so Oaktree is what I call a culturally driven organization. And there's no uncertainty within Oaktree of, of what we do. It's written out, it's, it's there, everybody understands it. We don't have, uh, we don't have uh, religious arguments. Uh, I say, as, I, as I put it, we don't have battles between the cowboys and the chickens. Everybody knows uh, what the route to success is at Oaktree. Um, and uh, so, um, you know, it, it, since we were in, and and I think I, I wrote in, in, there was a memo around 02 called The Most Important Thing, uh, which really set the model for the book, which came out in 11. And, uh, it, you know, the book has uh, 21 chapters, uh, 20 in the first edition and 21 in the second, because I added one. But each chapter says the most important thing is, and it's a different thing. 
because in investing, there is no one most important thing. There are many things which are essential and you have to get right. And so there, that's why I use that format. But in the, in the memo, it talked about a good partnership, uh, which is the most important thing. And I, I said in, the, in there that uh, the most important thing in a partnership is shared values and complementary skills. And I think that if you work with people who have different values than you do, it's unlikely to be successful because it is, it's going to be riven by strife. Uh, and, I, and as I say, uh, you know, the battle between the cowboys and the chickens, you know, because and because when you go through a bull market, the cowboys say the chickens are holding us back. And when it turns into a bear market, the chickens say the cowboys are getting us killed and it's unlikely to be successful. And then uh, and then complementary skills. If if your skills are duplicative and you have the same strengths, then you probably have the same weaknesses and the weaknesses can get you into trouble and the strengths are duplicative. And what ends up happening is one person eventually says, well, I can do everything he does and more, I don't need him. And so he says, I want you to go cut your share. I need more. And that jeopardizes the organization. So shared values and complementary skills. And, uh, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I'm very proud that we have at Oak Tree and it's worked very well. And Bruce and I have been, now been partners for uh, uh, almost 35 years and we've never had an argument. And I'm very proud of that. We've had a lot of heated debates, but no arguments. Is there a conversation with Bruce that when I ask that question just comes to mind? Very memorable one for you? Well, I mean, the, the most memorable one, uh, um, and as I said, we've never had an argument. Uh, and the most memorable one is not a disagreement, it's an agreement. But the reason why we were able to be so cautious heading into the global financial crisis is because we were in agreement on the state of the world. And, you know, uh, I would read the newspaper and I would go into his office. I say, look at this. And, I, and they would report some new deal that was done. And I, was, I, I would say to him, look at this piece of crap that was issued yesterday. There's something wrong. If, 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 a, ter- if a security so unterrible and so punitive to the buyers can be issued today and can be can run into excessive demand, then there's something wrong with the market because the market is supposed to be a policeman to issuance. And uh, the presence of risk aversion on the part of buyers polices the market. It keeps the market safe and sane. And if nutty securities can be issued, which are terribly risky and, uh, and unfounded, then there's something wrong. And it was just this, that simply that, that, that turned us cautious in the years leading up to the global financial crisis. And when you, when you, uh, when you avoid the pain of, of the collapse, which we did, then you have your wits about you and you can swing into action and take advantage of the bargains that are created by the carnage. If you are being hurt every day, and your portfolio is breaking down and your companies are turning into basket cases requiring remediation, you can't become aggressive. Number one, you're too busy. And number two, you're too scarred uh, to be able to turn aggressive. And you know, when, you, when, when the world melts down 
as it did in 08 after the Lehman bankruptcy. And you see everybody's got all these problems that they're working on. And you kind of have few, if any, uh, condition uh, companies requiring remediation. Then you say, oh, man, this is great. You know, this I, I love it. The, this is a buying opportunity. You can't do that if you're if you're uh, getting beat up every day. Survival's a hell of a thing. Yeah. Howard, I, I know we've got to close up here in a minute. Um, one of the things that you do a great job of, and I feel like smart people do, is they take the logical words and they, they put thoughts into, th- into things that we've thought but just haven't been able to articulate. A minute ago, you mentioned codifying down your thinking. I know so many people who are fans of the memos must think, what is that process like for you when, when you're thinking well, out the next all, memo? First of all, uh, the greatest thing about the memos, well, people like them. I've been writing, writing about just over 30 years. Uh, I, in the first 10 years, I never had a response. I, you know, I never heard, not only did nobody say this, that was great, nobody ever said I got it, uh, literally. <laughs> uh, they only went to the clients and there were only a few hundred and these were the days of mail. And to respond, somebody would have had to actually pick up the phone or, and call or look up my number or uh, put pen to paper and then write it and put a stamp on it in a mail and, uh, and, and put it in the mailbox. And nobody ever did that for 10 years. And I kept going because it was great for me. And it was, it's, first of all, it's my creative outlet. I love to write. And number two, uh, I have learned so much from writing and a lot of the things that I think are there because I thought of them during the writing process. Many times I write a memo, I go into the, to the uh, writing process not having thought the thoughts and the thoughts emerge in the writing process. The greatest example is that I was writing a memo on risk in 06. And you know everybody talks about quantifying risk and so forth. And I wrote down that risk cannot be quantified in advance. Risk is the probability of a bad outcome. You can't measure uh, probabilities. Of, of uncertain events. Uh, you can't, uh, there's no place you can look. You know, it's, it, I, let's say that at the time I said that risk is the probability of permanent loss. There's no place you can look to measure the probability of a bad outcome, uh, you know. Uh, and so that was very important and I wrote it down and I, I'd always thought that. And, and, and then I, I started, keep t- I kept typing and I wrote, and you can't even figure out the probability of a loss after the fact. You can't tell whether something was risky after the fact. If you invest $100 and a year later you sell it for $200, was it risky? You can't tell. Why? Because the outcome that happened was only one of the outcomes that could have happened. We're back to Taleb and alternative histories. And so if if many things could have happened but didn't, then you can't say what the real range of possibilities was. You can't say what the probability distribution governing that investment was. That is to say, you can't tell whether it was risky. So uh, I love to write. Uh, There are two kinds of memos. There are the uh, ones in the moment, an event happens, and I think that it's my job to explain them to my clients. And so, uh, you know, I write, you know, as I said, uh, uh, Lehman Brothers went under on September 15th, Friday. I walked into the office on the 18th, sat down and wrote a memo, uh, and we published it on the 19th. I think it was called uh, uh, Now What? Or something like brilliant like that. And 
So it doesn't take long and I do it quickly. Then there are memos which are uh, important in their uh, uh, substance, which are kind of like projects. And, and these, you know, I accumulate uh, information, clippings, pile them up. When I'm ready to go, I start writing. And these can take one to three months uh, because I feel no hurry and I want to do a thorough job. Uh, so um, I write them over sometimes quickly, sometimes over time. I, I don't feel the pressure, time pressure on the latter ones. So I write a section and then I'll stop for a week or something like that. And when I next have a thought, uh, I'll uh, write some more. Uh, just like with the books, they're not written under time pressure, take a long time. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I love to edit them because I, I feel it kind of shaping is shaping and polishing. Uh, like a, uh, you know, lapidist. And, uh, um, and then when ready, I, there are a few people I share them with at Oak Tree and they give me comments and then they go out. I love it. Two, two of my all-time favorite memos were uh, Risk Revisited and then Dare to be Great too. Uh, I, I have well, all your memos printed well, out. I, well, I think, though, I think, I actually think that certainly until recently, I've written a couple of good ones. One called You Bet about the comparison with gambling. One called Getting Lucky about the importance of luck and how lucky I've been. And now this one about value. Most people write and say that, that something of value is the best. Uh, and the response has been extremely uh, strong. But other than that, I think that Risk Revisited again, not re not Risk Revisited, but Risk Revisited again, uh, and and Dare to be Great too, I think are the, are the two best. Yeah, something, something of value. Uh, me thinking a lot about my relationship with my father, uh, I, with COVID, just not getting to spend much time with him. It made me think I, I really want to sit down with him some more and have some deeper conversations. So I, I need to thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, I know we need that forever, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I know we need to wrap up here. Two final things. You've mentioned Taleb, you mentioned a lot of great works throughout the years. Any other books that just have really stuck with you throughout all the years? Well, well, um, uh, one of my heroes was John Kenneth Galbraith, and he wrote a book called Short History of Financial Euphoria, uh, which I thought was very good. And one of the first ones that got me formally thinking about cycles, because what it was, uh, was about the, some of the excesses of, of optimism that he had seen and the, some of the extreme bull markets. Uh, um, Peter Bernstein's uh, book uh, Against the Gods, uh, which uh, discusses the origin of the science of probabilities. And it's only because of the creation of the science of, uh, of probabilities that, that, uh, that we can uh, understand and risk and transfer risk. I mean, it the insurance industry couldn't exist if, if there was no sense for the probabilities of bad things happening, which is what we, we transfer the risk of that to the insurance company uh, by taking out car insurance and so forth. So against the gods was very important. Uh, and uh, Devil Take the Hindmost by Edward Chancellor, uh, which talked about things like the South Sea bubble and Tulip bubble. And, uh, and that book was the inspiration for my uh, memo, uh, uh, Bubble.com, uh, the first day of 2000, uh, which talked about the excesses of the, t of the tech bubble. Uh, and which had the, first of all, that, that I wrote that on, on the 10th, kind of the 10th anniversary of the first memo. And that's the first one that got a response. And that's the one. So I said that, that oh, after 10 years, I became an overnight success. 
because of bubble.com. And, uh, and that's what put me on the map because it was right quickly. Remember I said, if you're right, but it takes five years, it, it looks like you're wrong. This one was right, right away. Cause I did it in 2000. And, and, uh, so, uh, yeah, that was, that was terrific. Howard, you know I could do this for hours with you. You just leave the microphones recording. Final one. If you were going to do this with someone dead or alive, not a family member or a lost friend, anyone throughout history that you could spend an evening having a conversation with, who would it be? History. Uh, history's a long time. Probably Ben Graham. Yeah. You know, I've been lucky to spend uh, good amounts of time with Warren Buffett and uh, uh, Charlie Munger, especially, uh, and uh, Seth Klarman, who's a, one, of the, one of the people that I think thinks best maybe because we think the same uh but i think that i'd, I'd love to spend some time with ben graham that's fantastic well, well howard you, you know this uh i valued just what, what you've been able to teach so many throughout the years uh, it's had such an impact on me so i want to thank you for that you. we're going to have all the books all the memos linked up anywhere else you want listeners staying connected with you uh well you know uh, all the memos carry a uh, uh an email address for responses and uh, I love to get responses. I get a lot, and they're very gratifying. And uh, most people say nice things because they don't want to say bad things. And uh, and and it's these responses that keep me going, uh, you know. And I keep them. And, and uh, so you know, I'm always glad to hear on that on that email address. Great. Well, Howard, thank you so much for joining us on What Got You There. Thanks for your questions. It's been a lot of fun, Sean. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.